The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing Labour's new paymasters. We'll be looking at whether humans might one day worship AI. And finally, we'll talk about whether fake fans are ruining football. First up. In the cover story in this week's magazine, Katie Balls writes about Labour's new paymasters. Keir Starmer's party now, for the first time since records began, receives more money from private donors than it does from trade unions. Who are the new donors and what do they want? Katie joins us now, along with the journalist Paul Mason, to discuss. Katie, could you start by telling our listeners about the types of people who are donating to the Labour Party and why they're doing so now in such large sums. So I think there are a few factors at play. When Keir Starmer took over the Labour Party, he inherited quite a difficult financial situation. Lots of money in legal fees, a lot tracing back to some disputes under the Corbyn era. You also had a few things such as, if uh, people remember the Labour Live Festival. I was, Who could forget I was lucky enough to attend. Do you remember it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, see I was lucky enough not to attend. <laughs> I did not pay for my ticket there, which might suggest why I uh, lost so much money (laughs) but a few loss making uh, Corbyn stunts such as this and then also actually a problem that was compounded by Keir Starmer which was Jeremy Corbyn's model for funding the Labour Party when he was leader was actually by growing the grassroots and the membership and also through the unions. Now, Keir Starmer, when he became leader, you saw about over 100,000 members leave, which obviously means less money. And even of Ed Miliband, I think less reliance on the grassroots. But again, his biggest donors were the unions. So for Keir Starmer, I think a calculation was made pretty early on that if he uh, is planning to move rightwards, which we have seen, and also just, I think, for his general independence the more sources of money you are getting the better so you're not so reliant on one group and therefore we're seeing a return almost to the Blair model of going to centrist millionaires and just very briefly in the piece I say they roughly fall into three groups in terms of what they're trying to do so you have the disillusioned Tory donors which are being courted you have the Blairites returning big donors like Lord Sainsbury's and then you have some eccentric donors such as those who also fund just stop oil. Paul what do you make of Keir Starmer's decision to move away from the membership model I mean do you think it's a sensible idea or do you think it could be a mistake? Well I think Katie's typology actually falls very closely to the kind of stereotypes that exist within the Labour Party, centrist dads and cranks. Uh, you know, I mean, depending on which part of the membership you, you're in, those epithets have been used quite commonly by all sides. I think it's welcome, actually, I'm on the left of the party, but I think it's welcome that we are seeing individual rich people put their money behind Labour because to prepare for government, and I think Labour is moving in the next 18 months into a preparing for government mode as well as a campaigning mode, you need resources. 
One of the problems we had in the Corbyn era was that for understandable reasons, not wanting sort of the, the grubby hands of the big four consultancies all over your policy making, Corbyn sort of tried to do everything himself. There, there was a sort of do it oneself within the Labour movement. And I think the expertise just doesn't exist at the highest level. So hopefully some of that money is not just buying ad space on Facebook. It'll be buying research. It will be buying expertise in polling, in data analysis. Um, you have to get it from somewhere. And as you you point out, Katie, for the last year, I think it's 6.5 million from rich individuals, about five and a bit million from trade unions. Trade unions are not insignificant even now. And uh, Katie, you, you'd mentioned the first and perhaps most eye-catching of the categories of donor of Labour's new backers are the defecting Tory backers. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a bit more about how Labour has been managing to sort of hoover up these former Tory backers. What are they pitching to them? So I think this crosses over with something that's been happening for a while now, which is the business engagement coming from Labour. So Rachel Reeves, something I think has been pretty well covered um, by myself and others, has been embarking on this uh, smoked salmon and scrambled egg circuit where she's been going to breakfast, I think, with over 500 execs, chief execs. Obviously, you had the prawn cocktail events back in the day, which I think was seen to be a little bit less successful. Um, and John Smith did that. But it is ultimately a reassurance operation. And if you think back to the 2015 election, where several businesses came out with this group letter warning not to take the risk on a Labour government, this is at the very least trying to stop something like that from happening, even if you don't get endorsements. Now, what has happened is... um, Turns out lots of business figures and uh, former Tory donors are quite unhappy with the government. I had one figure say that they've almost been surprised by the level of, they find often the most venom towards this Tory government comes from former Tory donors. And therefore, at some of these meetings, when they're talking about how Labour could work, you know, they try and be quite reassuring, saying there are Labour values um, that we will stick by, but ultimately giving off, I think, quite a Blairite sense, is what one attendee said to me. Uh, so ultimately, at these meetings, they, they then will say, well, if, if you want to put some money forward that's often that option will come a bit later so they merge and uh, they've had some success so far I mean I think if you look across you know there's about four quite public former Tory donors who have said they're going to back Keir Starmer and put money in and the criticisms I think come from various places but you know some have cited the fact that they think that this government's self-serving, scandal-ridden, others take issue with Brexit. But I think also in terms of who Labour is targeting, they're not going for these, you know, dyed-in-the-wool hardcore Tory donors. They're trying to find those centrist Tory donors who are perhaps, you know, a little bit less tribal. And ultimately, I think what helps here is the fact that the polls now suggest, as Paul said, that Labour are heading to government barring a big change. That does help you get these people on side because even if you don't agree with everything a Labour government might do, you are thinking, well, it'd be good to have a line It'd be good to have some influence. It'd be good to know who to speak to. So so why not find some cash? And Paul, what do the more left-wing members of the party make of all this? I mean, do they recognise the kind of real politique of getting Labour into power or do they, do they think that Keir Starmer is, is selling out? Well, look, I'm a left-wing member of the party and I don't think Keir Starmer is selling out. However, what politics is about is ultimately, you know, A-level politics <laughs> teaches you this, interest groups. And interest groups put money in in order to gain influence, but and you can't buy influence in British politics, I hope. I don't think we're in a stage where you can directly buy it. But what you can do is, is boost an agenda. Now, one thing I think, if you let's explore a different typology of donor. There are 
Whole sections of business for whom this, the Conservative government have become dysfunctional. People who are engaged in the sort of global corporate financial world, where, you know, oriented to Europe, oriented to a rules-based order, have been quite disorientated by the shenanigans of post-Brexit. That's number one. Anybody anywhere close to renewable energy is utterly frustrated, not just by the slowness of government action, but the repeated emergence of nimbyism at local level. You know, you've got key members of the actual government objecting to key solar, renewable and even nuclear schemes in their own backyard. And I think that combination of what you might call sort of European-centric capital, renewable energy capital, and then just sector by sector, uh, you see the repeated story of uh, short-termism, austerity, We've only got 18 months left and it's not clear to many people in business what Sunak thinks he has a mandate for. And if Starmer is the coming guy, you know, at, at local level, you, I, I tried to become a candidate from, for the place where I'm speaking to you from, West Wales, Priscilla, Pembrokeshire. And one of the first things I had to do was to speak to major employers in the area and say, look, it may, I may end as a candidate. I didn't in the end. Here's what my agenda is going to be with regards to, in, in this case, offshore wind. So even no matter what wing of Labourism you're from, the, the name of the game is creating jobs, creating value, bringing investment. And so even at local level, whether Starmer was doing this or not, building confidence among major business decision makers is the name of the game of being a Labour campaigner right now. Katie, it's clear from your piece that a lot of these donors are quite pro-Remain. I mean, what, what sort of influence do you think that that would have on Starmer were he to become Prime Minister? So Labour are very insistent that they are not offering access in return for cash. And of course, that's not that surprising that they would say this. But I think when you listen to some of the things the donors are saying, they, they clearly want to have a line. They want to know what's going in. There's often a difference actually between influence and access. So you might think uh, you're getting influence and actually you're just getting access, as in once a year you get invited to a room and you get to have a drink two metres away from Keir Starmer. And that, that might be enough for some. Um, but I think if you look at the fact that so many of these bigger money donors have very strong views in the sense that and some of these comments date back to the time of the EU referendum and we could find some things Keir Starmer said on that too but effectively saying that they think Brexit's you know a disaster some have talked about you know a second referendum I think it's hard to move the Labour leadership from their position which is effectively no rejoining of the customs union no single market and so forth but I do think if you have a Labour government and you also have these types of supporters what you'll hear a lot of is listen to business listen to business and I think that can probably lead to probably closer alignment on quite a few issues if you think about the fact the trade deal is up for renewal in a year or two's time um, that would be potentially and the Labour leadership has spoken about this potentially a time to look at smoothing some of the things and therefore I think it just adds to the sense that um, you would probably be heading to a Brexit deal or at least pressure for a Brexit deal which uh, is less robust and is much more closer in alignment and probably more of a rule follower than a rule maker but then again you could look at what the Tories have done in the past few years and say they haven't massively taken advantage of having a looser Brexit deal. And uh, Paul, uh, Katie ends her piece by talking about Dale Vince who as well as donating money to the Labour Party also funds uh, such organisations as as Just Stop Oil and uh, she points out that, that Sunak was able to sort of use this against Keir Starmer and say that Just Stop Oil are writing Keir Starmer's energy, energy policy 
Uh, is there a, a risk, perhaps, that Starmer is open to these kind of attacks now that money is coming from all these different sources rather than just from the unions? Or do you think, actually, Tories perhaps should think about throwing stones in glass houses when it comes to uh, <laughs> talking about where, where donations might come from and how they might influence things? Well, they won't. You know, not this, with something, I think this is a party that's taken millions from Russian oligarchs. They, they won't be rethinking. Look, I think the, the kind of capital that is giving to Labour isn't just driven by obsessions about Remain or Brexit. It's about what kind of capitalism people want to live in. And I think that the fact is that somebody like Dale Vince, by funding Just Stop Oil, may look like an outlier, but he is not when it comes to the kind of sentiments you hear about a kind of ESG, socially responsible, green capitalism that many investors want. You know, it's, it's not... It's about a year since BlackRock, the biggest investment company in the world, said, look, we are investing in a green future. Get out of oil, get out of gas, get out of, of carbon to its clients. So the, there's one direction for capitalism, and it's towards a, a greener, more sustainable future. And I think that's what brings together the people we're, we're talking about. I think Labour does have to be careful. It's not about distancing yourself from simply the just stop oil and its tactic. It's about also understanding the enthusiasm of many voters, not just young, trendy voters, many voters, for the prospect of a green jobs revolution, you know, better jobs, better paid jobs, cleaner air, better transport links. These tangible things are what, when it's done right, the green agenda delivers, say in a place like Manchester where Andy Burnham's about to do it with the buses, it's a notably not a clean air scheme. There is an electoral attractiveness to green politics that I think if we analyse these donors, many of them, really, that's what they're investing in. The people who are not investing are the people who back people like Lord Frost and people like Farage. There's a whole cadre of people in, in capitalism that, that want to slow the energy transition. Labour, you know, whatever other compromises it's made, 28 billion here and there, it remains the party of a green affair of Britain. And I think kind of large numbers of people get that and they want to put their money behind it. Thank you, Katie and Paul. Next up, Professors Webb Keane from the University of Michigan and Scott Shapiro from Yale write in this week's magazine about the rise of the Godbot. You can now chat online to an artificial intelligence that pretends to be God. So might people soon start outsourcing their ethics to a chatbot? Webb joins us now alongside The Spectator's commissioning editor, Mary Wakefield. So Webb, for listeners who might not be familiar with them, Please, can you tell us what is a Godbot? A Godbot is it's actually a term that, I, as far as I know, we coined ourselves in the process of talking over these new phenomena. And by Godbot, what we mean are these new uses of chatbots and other AI forms, but this really exploded with chatbots. The use of chatbots to answer people's questions about matters of really deep concern, ethical, moral, religious questions, and that are designed to give them single authoritative answers. You ask them, well, here's an example. There's something called uh, askdelphi.com, which is, of course, named after the ancient Greek oracle. And you ask it questions, you know, should I cheat on my wife or something like that? And it will give you an answer. It crowdsources, uh, it claims to be drawing on, you know, millions of uh, opinions on the subject, but 
it boils it all down to a single authoritative answer to your question. It speaks, as it were, with the authority of a God. And would everyone get the same answer? That's an interesting question. Um, as far as I can tell, they are a constantly moving target because all of these large language uh, models, they are constantly drawing on new sources. So these are so new that it's hard to say for sure, but my guess is they're going to be constantly shifting, in, but maybe shifting in incremental ways as they get new input. Yeah, that's one of the things that seems very persuasive about your piece is that you say these things are unpredictable. And so that's what makes them so believable. You ask a question and you, and they're inscrutable. You don't know how they're coming to the decision and unpredictable. So suddenly, even if you were sceptical to begin with, suddenly you find yourself thinking, well, maybe this thing does have the answers. I mean... Yes, it's really uncanny. So Mary, do you agree that uh, the unexplainability, which is how Webb and Scott describe it in their piece, is that, do you think, part of the... Appeal, if that's the right word. Oh, completely, for, for yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what, what? I was very scared by the piece, but um, I also think we're all more credulous than we think we are. I mean, I believe whatever the last person told me to believe, so I'm sort of aware how susceptible I am, but we all think we're rational post-religious you know, religious now. It makes us very vulnerable. What do you think, Webb? I, you know, I think it's a really important point, Mary, that um, something that we tried to emphasize in our piece is that you may think you're a scientific, secular, maybe even militantly atheist person, but you're still susceptible. That this is not just something that uh, the gullible or ignorant um, uh, fall for. It is a fundamental propensity that we, we all succumb to. And it's, I think it's very important that you can't just sort of dismiss it as, as a marginal phenomenon that just a few suckers uh, fall yeah. for it. Um, and also, no one's watching you and I now. too are vulnerable yes. to, to this kind of uh, dynamic. Yeah, I suppose also we're used to asking the internet stuff every day. Uh-huh. I mean, I know so little I couldn't survive without asking the internet a lot. And so it's normal for us to just type stuff into Google maybe 200 times a day. You know, so why? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's part of our normal practice. In a way, we're more religious in terms of that practice, asking questions into the unknown, you know. Yeah. Mary, I think there's a, an important difference, though, between what we're describing and, say, Google. Yes, we've all, Google is, you know, we, we've gotten sutured as Google. We are become, we've become cyborgs. Google is part of our brain, you know. Yeah. There is an important difference, I think. When I type something into Google, I get an endless range, of endless sort of scroll of options. Yeah. I get to choose who I'm going to listen to. I get to compare different possible answers. Google gives me lots of choices, lots of sources, and it tells me what those sources are. Think about it doesn't the, always a, a tell God me how it's ordering like Delphi them. is yeah. that it gives you the answer. Yeah. It doesn't say, well, on the one hand, and on the other hand, and here's some other things to think about, or you could go to this source, or you could go to that source, and if you want further information, you could go down this rabbit hole or down that rabbit hole. It just tells you what the answer is, and that's a big difference between. And is that is that difference? Is that difference, Web? Why you say in your piece that uh, we should be afraid of Godbots? Is is that the key difference that makes it something perhaps dangerous? Is the certainty of the answers being given? Yes, I think the danger is, in some sense, both the certainty that Godbots they are feeding our desire to have some give us absolute authoritative answers that I don't have to worry about anymore. Now I've got the answer. 
And in the process, what they're doing, we're essentially outsourcing our own responsibility to make hard decisions and to think things through ourselves. We're essentially, we've created something that's a human creation and then given it an authority that we have persuaded ourselves doesn't come from us. Yeah. Um, so the, there's a real danger here. You might even say kind of ethical de-skilling that you could imagine in the long run sort of losing the ability, just as people are losing the ability to, to find their way through a landscape without GPS. You could imagine someone, people are losing their ability to navigate an ethical landscape with well, a, I suppose this authoritative in, in, voice. I suppose in the traditional religious ideas of prayer, most people would say, if even when people who say their prayers have been answered, they normally would still say that there had to be some degree of human interpretation in the process. You know, it's not just a totally clear, this is precisely what you should do written down in front of you normally. I would That's say. absolutely right. Uh, I'm an anthropologist of religion, so I, I spend my a lot of time listening to people talk about these things. And what becomes very clear is from the outside, religions look like super authorities. I just do what the priests tell me to do. If you look at how they actually get practice, it's it's actually most of the time not like that at all. People are working things through. They discuss it with their families. They doubt the priest. They have questions. They just, they, there are multiple interpretations of what the scripture says. I mean, you know, I'm speaking to you from America, where like every 10 minutes, we've got another new religious faction springing up. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that. these are, and the same goes for traditional divination practices, that the diviner reads the entrails of the sacrifice, but then people talk it over. Yeah, I, I, I trust entrails over, over you know, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> and Webb, do we have any sense of how religious leaders are responding to the rise of these godbots? I mean, are they worried for their jobs? <laughs> well, I'm not sure if they're worried about their jobs, but I think they're certainly, uh, you know, they're a little like professors that way. We don't like other people speaking with our authority. Uh, I think... Certainly in the more established religious hierarchies, I think there is a certain amount of concern. You know, these I'm not sure if the godbots have become popular or proliferated enough to be at the front of their attention right now, but things are changing very fast. So I think that we're going to hear more and more pushback from religious authorities. I, think, I mean, over here, I would have thought the C of E would welcome it. I'd be very surprised if they're not <laughs> installing, because, you know, we have a recruitment crisis with um, vocations and that sort of thing. I, mean, I definitely have heard some uh, CV sermons that could easily have been written by ChatGPT. They may as well. Uh, this, could be, yeah. this could be the, the, the reformation we need. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we did mention in the essay there has already been a, a chatbot sermon in Germany, although apparently it didn't go over very well. <laughs> That's a relief in some yes, ways, Yes, it is a relief. The first airplanes didn't fly very far. <laughs> yeah. I would have thought like polytheistic religions were particularly susceptible, as you mentioned, because you've got all sorts of different shrines and the idea of household gods. And that may as well be an AI projection trained on a particular religious text. Well, that's interesting because, of course, when you have a polytheistic landscape, you're always aware of, of alternatives. And people yeah. shop around. In places where you have lots of gods, you know, if this god's not working for me, well, there's another one down the, you know, on the other side of the mountain. Uh, I'll try them out. If you've got a really authoritative god bot, it's, it's going to try to persuade you that. Uh, it's no, the only god bot. Stick with me. Yeah. yeah. I suppose the other thing is, that, you know, in an actual kind of meat space setting, you've got people around, as you say, to discuss or maybe be skeptical about a priest. Whereas when it's just on your phone, 
there's no one watching and you can persuade yourself to trust it. I think that's a really good point, Mary. There's a very strong sort of isolating effect that our relationship to our devices has such that, yeah, you don't have those other people around you. I've been in, in divining sessions where people are reading the entrails and everybody's got their two bets. Everyone's going to throw in their, <laughs> their, their opinion on the matter. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the priest may have special authority, but other people are, you know, they're not just sitting there passively taking it in. But if it's just me and my phone, you know, scary. then yeah. and in some sense, they've got me. <laughs> and well, just to finish on, I mean, have you been given any good advice by a godbot that you do think is worth <laughs> following? You know, I, that you I, thought I, was I, true. I, I, <laughs> I tried them out. Um, I asked them easy questions just to see what they come with. The answers I've gotten so far are incredibly banal. Yeah. Well, we, uh, <laughs> as you might expect, just like, you know, the student essay that turns out to have been written by a chatbot looks like it was written by a chatbot. <laughs> 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 what is it? Because what are these large language models giving you? They're giving you an average. So they're giving you the most banal. What happens when you average out all the extremes? You get the most banal possible result. Let's hope it stays that way. Thank you, Webb and Mary. And finally, The Spectator's Deputy Director of Research, Sir McPhail, writes in this week's magazine about how football's biggest stars are changing the way fans enjoy the game and the way teams play it. To explain, Sam joins me now, along with regular Spectator contributor Damien Riley. Sam, you write in your piece that some footballers are becoming bigger than the clubs they play for. What's going on and why do you think it's a problem? I think it's important to be clear, it's like this is the top strata of football players. In the way that I think in the last few years we've seen kind of this big stratification between top European clubs leaving everyone else behind. Now you have the top players who I think 15 years ago we, you think when David Beckham went to LA Galaxy it was massive fanfare. Everyone was buying his kit. But then that was it. You couldn't follow him. You couldn't really see him. The MS over there, the sports league was just doing its own thing. Whereas now it's they're everywhere. The Messis, the Ronaldos, the Mbappes. You can't turn your head without seeing them on a, you know, a billboard or on social media. So you think it's, a, it's primarily a trend driven by social media? I think, it? yeah, social media, international broadcast as well. And the fans, the number of fans who follow the top leagues now have just double, tripled in the past 10 years alone. The amount of money sloshing around from big clubs, it's put the game on steroids. But what's wrong with that? Well, there's not necessarily anything wrong with it. I just think it's interesting that now a lot of younger fans are turning towards the stars rather than their clubs. And it's probably maybe a bit of a romantic idea, but football has kind of been this, this great sport of, you know, it's passed down generation to generation, you know. You support the, the team your dad supports or your granddad supports when he takes you on the weekend. Whereas now it's kind of done through the prism of your phone, maybe uh, watching highlights on YouTube or you're seeing what a footballer's having for breakfast rather than what he's actually doing on the pitch. It's kind of, it's this mishmash of, you know, celeb culture, American Hollywoodization, which has kind of been just forced into the game. Damien, do you agree with Sam's uh, argument that the way that fans enjoy football is changing? And uh, what do you make of it? Well, I've long argued that fans should be able to switch allegiances, and I don't understand why they don't. I used to support Manchester United back in the 90s when Rupert Murdoch bought football and started aggressively marketing it at the middle class, of which I'm a member. Previously, I had no interest. I, they were the swashbuckling, exciting team, so it was, they were the clear choice to support. Then Alex Ferguson left, football became very boring, so I started supporting Arsenal. 
uh, and I wrote a piece about that back in 2017, and I got dogs abuse on Twitter for it. But I've never understood why you can't switch allegiances. The players switch teams, the managers switch teams. It's just the fans that are told they can't switch teams. Uh, and it makes no sense. If you were your favourite restaurant, if you would go to and it changed its, its chef, it changed its menu, it changed its management, and it became objectively a, a different restaurant or a bad restaurant, you would stop patronising it. You go to a different, you choose a new restaurant to go to. And it's, it's never made sense to me that uh, football and is different to this. There's a brand loyalty to football that the CEO of any company would kill for. So I think it makes sense that, for example, the, and you mentioned in your piece that the Korean fans who support Son at Tottenham, if Son went elsewhere, they would also go elsewhere. I think that's capitalism and it, it makes perfect sense to me. But what about this idea that people are following football not through teams as a whole, but through particular players? Is that something which, which you would... Uh, do yourself? Or you, mean, you... you mean in terms of their allegiance or yes, the way they experience yeah. the game? Well, I suppose back in, I mean, since the 1990s, Real Madrid started the Galactico culture of just buying the most exciting players in the world and generating enormous sales of merchandise, which kind of financed, I'm not sure how effectively, but sort of financed the whole thing. And so they, they were on to something pretty early. I think I am trying to work up the energy at the moment to support Fulham because I can virtually see the stadium from my house. But then when I see what they want for season tickets, I can't quite manage it. But if they were to sign Messi or Ronaldo or Bellingham, I'd be there with bells on. And Sam, you say in your piece that uh, it's, this is not just cha- changing the way that the game is enjoyed, it's changing the way it's played as well with exhibition matches and, and so on. I wonder if you could explain a little bit more for our listeners how it's actually changing the nature of the play. Um, well, the play's kind of the same. It's just... With exhibition matches, often the, you either see these in pre-season friendlies or now they're starting to put them in international breaks. I mean, the example of the PSG playing the Riyadh All-Stars, a team who no one had particularly ever heard of. They form, they join another team to, on paper, make this essentially the Harlem Globetrotters of Saudi Arabia. You know, and they, they play mid-season during an intense game just after the World Cup. I mean, if you have the stress on the players, stress on the fans. But millions of people tune in to essentially watch two of the world's best players, three of the world's best players go head-to-head. But for a game that has absolutely no impact on the season, the, the players, the club, it's just it's a spectacle. It's a bit gross. Yeah. What, why why gross, do you think? I'd say it's, it's part of this bigger sense of the Americanization of, of European football in particular, where clubs are safe. They can't go up and down. It's a big spectacle. There is no necessarily no meaning to it I would say in the same way there is as European football the franchises can move in a way that would kill any uh, town which is so in- closely linked to a football club in this country What do you make of that argument Damien that it's uh, is, is Sam being a little over romantic in, in his ideas about uh, the old fashioned nature of football clubs? I think it's easy to be sentimental about football and, and I hate that opinion and I think there's some validity to it I just think the forces of capitalism are at work and they're impossible to ignore. Uh, I think just like any other business, even, you know, the great spectator, you have star columnists that people come chiefly to read and then they read the rest of the magazine, say. And if perhaps, you know, the great Rod Little or Toby Young uh, was to move to a different magazine, which I hope never, ever happens, then maybe a large chunk of the readership would also follow. Uh, It's the same for any commercial business. And I don't think you can ignore that with football. I think football fans deep down like to be quite miserable there's a kind of heroism in the misery of following your teams through the terrible times and there's a sort of 
almost like a cuckold, you know, you sort of, you, uh, who has suffered the most? There's kind of ecstasy and suffering through loyalty, which there's a romance to it, but I've never, I've just never quite got it. I think if something is making you grindingly unhappy, then move on, choose something would you, else. Would you ever switch teams, Sam? Never. I, you're I absolutely, say, I you're, you're Liverpool that, for life. I think this, that's what I was saying on the, the social media, the branding, I think you liken the earlier to your favourite restaurant. I say a football club is not a brand, it's not a, rest, it's not a restaurant. But it is. It, started, it's, it's, it has its roots as part of this community endeavour, this working class sport. And although it's been you know, monetized, and maybe some people would call it now a bit of an ugly spectacle in some ways, you know, these, these clubs are inherently linked to the local fans and the communities that they rep, they're a part you of. You still think that's true with the, the, the owners of the clubs? I mean, who owns Liverpool? FSG. And are they deeply rooted in the Liverpool community? No, but there's a way in which they can never, ever move Liverpool. I mean, I think look back to how Wimbledon and MK Dons and that massive, that farce. And I th- you think of the current, the current clubs that you've gone in the most recent years through such horrible time, Macclesfield, Berry, clubs like that. Even in France now, last week, Social goes. It's a, a t- town in the middle of nowhere. Suddenly, it's football clubs gone. How many times have you switched allegiances in your life, Damien? Well, I went, I went from Manchester United to Arsenal, then I tried to go back to Manchester United when they were quite good again. And now I think simply because proximity, Fulham is close to me. I can, you know, I could throw a cricket ball almost to the stadium. So I want to try and support it. Is Damien a fake fan? So? I'm sad, Damien. Sorry, you're a bit of a plastic. I'm afraid <laughs> that. But I don't. Uh, I think football clubs are hard-eyed commercial entities. I don't think they care a toss about the fans. I think they're like drug dealers. They get the fans hooked on the supply, and then they hike up the prices and hike up the prices. Liverpool has no idea who you are, or, I mean, not you, but any of the fans, and are quite happy to bleed you dry for revenue. Uh, and it's completely one-sided if you won't at any stage say, well, I'll take my business elsewhere. If Liverpool were to sign a bunch of really duff players, get rid of the sainted Klopp, run the, the stadium down in the facilities, you presumably would carry on supporting. Yeah. Yeah. And so they can do what they like. Going back to your early point, though, that would be in a way, good, because it'll be that weird catharsis of me punching myself every week. <laughs> so you're saying what I said is true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, a ma- you're a masochist. But is this, is, this is the kind of, this is the beauty of football. It's the ups and the downs, which in America you don't necessarily get because you can't go down. And with the exhibition games, if there are no winners, there are no losers. It's just a score at the end of the game. It's a circus. So to go with the drug dealing analogy that you were using earlier, Damien, are you just high all the time? Because when it, start, when it starts to why dip, ne- why not? And you switch team. <laughs> why would you, if, you if, you're, if there's a choice between high and low, why would you not always want to be high? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I do have sympathy. I'm being a little bit facetious. There is a romance to following the team through the ups and the downs and being part of it. But I think that sense of taking an interest in a team and just following it and you know, and not being too involved died pretty much in the 90s when Murdoch bought it. I think the sense that you're endlessly told by the whole industrial complex around football that you are part of something, that you're part of the team. When you hear people calling into the phone-ins, like 606 phone-in, that's always like, we, we did this, we played for each other, we wanted it more than the opposition, as if the caller is part of the team. It's departed reality a while ago. I mean, maybe I think you have some validity there in terms of you have the 40,000 or so fans in the stadium. They are the 12th man. They are there. But the millions and millions who are watching at home or you know, on their devices now, they have it's a, a, a retreating effect on the game. And they're the ones who turns into these numbers on bank accounts for the, the execs. But I, th- I still think that the people in the cities with the club 
for them, the it's a connection that can never be severed. Are you from Liverpool? My dad is, so I didn't get a choice, you see. Thank you, Sam and Damien. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator, where you can read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we do hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you.